Jason Scores, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Today, I have an interview with Cassin Trenner. He is the author of the new children's book, Umiju. And Cassin has been a conservationist and protector of the marine environment, educator, entrepreneur for more than 15 years. He opened the first sustainable sushi restaurant, Tataki, in San Francisco many years ago and has followed up with new restaurants in San Francisco as well as Honolulu that are entirely plant-based sushi. So he's really been a, a revolutionary in this plant-based sushi movement and just the plant-based food movement. But more broadly, again, has been a, a real voice for ocean conservation and advocate for for quite a long time in 2009 he received a hero of the environment award from time magazine he has been uh, a national speaker and lecturer and uh, again just a real visionary on on all things ocean conservation related and so today's conversation will focus mostly on his recent book but of course that book has a big uh, ocean conservation theme and so we get into kind of his thoughts on the movement and, and where things are going. Kasson's an incredibly engaging speaker and I think you'll really enjoy uh, all the the elements that we touch on. So without further ado I bring you my interview with Kasson Trenner. Hi I'm here with Kasson Trenner author of Umiju, a new awesome children's book that has a real strong ocean conservation message and we're going to get into the details of that book and Cassin's larger work. Uh, but Cassin, just thanks a lot for, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about, before we get into, you know, the, the details of the book, your your work in ocean conservation over the last 15 years or so and, and how that motivated you to, to write this book? Sure. I, uh, as you said, I've been active as a, as a professional in ocean conservation for about 15 years, and I've been trying a lot of different, a lot of different uh, approaches in that space over those years. Some I've been better at than others. Uh, and this, I guess, is yet another attempt to, to try to, to create something that's effective and, uh, and move the needle a little bit. I've never really worked on children's issues before um but uh i was in a in a conversation with a dear friend years ago who pointed out to me you know we we put all this effort into trying to change people's behavior or raise awareness or what have you in in the ocean conservation space and uh she said to me you know, you're you're trying so hard to change people a lot of whom have already made up their mind why don't you put effort into people that are are still listening, can still feel these kinds of emotions? Why why don't you try to talk to children? Um, I just never thought about it that way. She was a professional educator, and so she had a lot more information on that than than I did. And we talked about it for a while, and I I guess I was convinced. I said, you know, I I think it's worth a shot. I think what you're saying makes sense. Great. Uh, well for it. Great. Well, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, I just think, you know, I, I have some experience teaching junior high school for a while and my whole family is educators. And so it, 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 it often, you know, I, I think I have those kind of inner conversations with myself a lot too. I think what you said just really resonated with me about, you know, we're already talking to people who are kind of have hardened opinions versus people who are a little bit more pliable might not be the right word, but the people who just haven't formed their opinions and are therefore a little bit more open. It, do you did that resonate with you? Do you feel it's it's hard to, you know, convince that you know adults and that at children at least it's kind of a fresh palette, a fresh template to to work with? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think um, not only is it difficult to convince adults of things, but oftentimes we as adults have created lives where 
we don't allow ourselves to engage with the the feelings or the emotions that these kinds of issues bring up you know we're so we're so overwhelmed with all the difficult issues facing us as as adults on on a changing and and ailing earth that uh that we're simply not emotionally available for all of these different things. And I think with kids, there are fewer blockages between the reality of what's going on and an honest, deep-hearted reaction to what's going on. And so if I wanted to connect with someone on that level, because I, I think that's really one of the best sources of information about what's happening with our planet is to feel the way it makes us feel. Uh, and so it, it just sort of made sense to to go and listen to what uh, what children had to say about it and connect with them. Absolutely. Well, again, the book is Umiju, and it is it's lovely. There's incredible illustrations. We can talk a little bit about the artists who who work with you on this. And I and I really thought that the writing was excellent. As someone who has two nephews, I've been reading a lot of children's books over the last couple of years, and I'm really excited to, to give this one to them next week, actually, when I, when I see them. So, Great. and yeah, and I, and I, and by the way, I've already gotten many people, I've already, I, I took it around with me, and I was showing it to people who have kids and grandkids, and, and so I think I'm, if you see a, a, a tick up in book sales, you know, you'll, you'll know where it came from. Um, awesome. So, uh, so yeah, so to tell me a little bit about, I want to get into the details of the book without giving, you know, the whole thing away. But before we get into that, just how, how do you develop the idea that kind of the core structure of the story, was that something that you had been, you know, batting around in your mind or did you get motivated by other children's books you read? You know, where, where, where did the ideas come from? Well, it definitely evolved. Uh, well, the way that the book originally started was this concept of of learning about the reality of of the impacts of our choices directly from the animals who are impacted. That was sort of the 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 primary vehicle of of how I wanted to tell the story. As I wrote it, it uh, it changed and it evolved, and. Um, the the idea the guiding question that propels the book this idea of what what is love and 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 uh, what does it mean to love your food I think that sort of started to capture and and hone the story um, and draw it towards the the place that I wanted to go with it which is this idea that it's important for us to hold that kind of question in our mind as we move through the day, this, this idea of what's going to happen if I do this, what else is affected if I do this? Um, what does it mean for me to make this choice? And, and I use food as the framing device for the story, but I think the story is really, it's not just about food and it's not just about the ocean. It's really about balance. It's about community and thinking about other people. And, and I think in so many ways, those are the principles that are missing from the way that we, we relate with our ocean right now. And those are the principles that are causing us the problems that we see or the yeah. lack of those principles. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that, you know, I'm glad you touched on that core theme because I wanted to talk about that because I thought it was pretty... It's both novel and pretty heavy for a kid's book to, you know, this, this father is tell, you know, telling his daughter then that she might not really know what love is, you know, that it's not this simple emotion and questioning her and really asking her to look a little deeper. And that's, that's pretty heavy stuff for a kid's book. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I, you know, what, what, where did that come from? You know, what that motivation, because I thought that with that anchor, that was that, that rose it, I think that elevated this book a little deeper than most of your, you know, most of the books in that same genre. Was that a, you know, was that something that, that evolved also, or was that always the kind of the core uh, theme that you wanted to, to get across? Well, I was never interested in writing a children's book that was going to pander to kids, right? I, I, I wanted to write a book that would challenge the reader in a couple different ways. I wanted to write a, a book that would be emotionally um, interesting 
there are a few parts of Umiju where I do some things that I think a lot of conventional children's authors or, or publishers would think this is a strange move. Um, and that's one of them, this idea that there's this discussion where Umiju is told by her father, hey, I'm not sure you know what love really means. Um, maybe it's something you want to think about. Maybe it's something you want to learn more about. And yeah, I, I think that that sets up the story. But there's a, that's also the question that I want the whole, that the whole readership need, we need to ask ourselves. Because one of the points that this book digs at, and one of the things I wanted to explore, is the way that we use the word love in connection to our consumption habits. Mm. Because it, it's, uh, it's, an odd, it's an odd way to employ those principles. If we, if we think about love as being this emotion full of respect and care and admiration and connection, but then we use the word love to defend choices that cause just the opposite, that cause disconnection and destruction and um, uh, a sort of avalanche of these minor impacts that end up causing catastrophic changes to our ocean or to our land that doesn't seem like love to me. And so there, there's a disconnect there and I wanted to explore it. I wanted to, uh, to use that to set Umiju off on her journey. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you did that very effectively and I, it really did strike me as what differentiated your book from, from a lot of the other, the children's books that, you know, that, I, that I've read over the, over the many years and decades. Uh, I, I wanted to maybe kind of maybe we'll go off on a little tangent here because you know, I, I work in the conservation space at a pretty, you know, pretty detailed level and working on all types of policies from, you know, local to international. And I was talking with a friend the other day and, and we were, you know, almost kind of frustrated because obviously, you know, it's, it's two steps forward, one step back, sometimes maybe in this era right now, three steps back. And we were talking about how it's almost what's really needed is kind of a a spiritual revolution on the planet that that there's just only so much picking around the edges and the margins and changing rules and regulations can do and it really you know it's you know you have it's, and then just a, a parallel to this right it's almost you know racism obviously is a big problem in this country it's rearing its head again and, and there's only so many laws you can do to make people not racist right at some level if people haven't changed in their heart and still harbor those kind of resentments and grievances, they're going to express themselves in a certain amount of ways. And we're going to just play whack-a-mole, right? Trying to, trying to stop them. And so coming back to your book here, I think almost in some sense, what you're calling for is kind of that, that deeper kind of revelation in some sense that would really permeate one's thinking and then really lead to large scale kind of behavior change and not necessarily things that need to be, you know, again, dealt with on the margins. I'm, I'm curious if any of that resonates with you. Absolutely. And again, th this is sort of why I tried to make the book a little challenging because Umiju's, the, the habitat that I wanted this book to fall in was into that sort of liminal space that exists between the parent and the child or the guardian and the child or the two children together. The people, the book is at home when it's being read out loud because the, the challenges then are things that can be discussed and things that can be, that can be um, explored together. The, the words that I use from time to time that are maybe a little more challenging or maybe that not all the readers will know, you know, if we have seven and eight year olds reading the book or the themes like that, there are areas where we can dig at them together. And I think that that, that allows for us to approach these as a group. And I think that these, these issues that we're tangling with sort of like the issues that you brought up, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to reset yourself and be like, okay, I'm going to believe something different now. But if you have the opportunity to discuss them and to think through them and to see the way that they impact other people that you care about, I think that there's more of an impetus there 
to, to make these changes together with those that you love and with those that you share the story with you. Great, great. Well, I think that's, an, you know, it's a, certainly a great goal. And I think uh, if, if all children's books had something a little more lofty like that, we, we'd probably have more advanced uh, thinking at an early age. So I definitely applaud you for, for taking that, that tact. I think maybe let's switch to some of the, the, the specific themes in the book and, and we'll get more into, I guess, quote, adult conversation here in terms of the ocean conservation that you're really trying to kind of promote in, in, throughout the book. And, and from what I saw here, there's three main topics that you're, you're touching on here. One is kind of industrial aquaculture, fish farming. One is just industrial fishing writ large. And then you kind of end on, on more discussion of kind of ocean pollution more generally. And, you know, obviously I, I study a lot of this stuff pretty closely as well. And I, so I guess let's just start with the aquaculture conversation and you know do you you seem to come down pretty negatively against it in, in the book and, and I'm wondering if in your practice you know in the conservation space do you really think the whole kind of aquaculture project is doomed or do you think there are some some angles there with for example if you feed fish plants or if you do more mixed systems that are low on the trophic level you know what what, what are your what's your thoughts on aquaculture as a, a larger project well, it's, it's a good question. Um, so that first section that you're referring to, the, the section where she's having the conversation with the salmon. Yes. Um, I tried to write that section to, yes, absolutely reference some of the realities of conventional aquaculture. But I, I tried to write that section so it was really focused not specifically on aquaculture, but more specifically on the sort of, for lack of a better word, unnatural changes that can be levied on, on marine populations due to the, the desires of human beings to change what we can get out of the ocean or what we can get out of, of the natural world. Um, and yes, aquaculture can be one of those, but the other issue that I really tried to wrap into there was um, the reality of what happens with dams and hydroelectric power, uh, which is another, of course, major threat to our oceans. So the, I, I tried to tease out the commonalities there, right? These ideas of changing the ways that rivers move and creating, creating walls between where the fish are and where the fish need to go and their migratory patterns and making it very easy for them to be caught or stranded and or, and, and a lot of these themes, yeah, are, are very applicable to aquaculture as well. So I tried to try those in, these ideas of being in a pen or in a net or unable to go to where one needs to go or not being able to behave the way that, that the, the natural predilection of the fish would suggest. Um, I think, I think the, the issues that I take with aquaculture in, in a lot of cases are issues around this human sort of hubris, this idea that we can make fish better, that we can, if we change things, if we, if we change their genetics, or if we, if we put them in a farm where we can get to them year round, or if we give them this specific diet or, or what have you, we can fix the natural order in such a way that we can get something that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to get we still should like for example having salmon year round which is not a natural thing because salmon is a is a seasonal and cyclical organism and, and in order to to produce it year round we need to have these big farms i think that's sort of what i'm trying to take issue with um because while i do absolutely think that there is our uses for aquaculture i think that with our growing population we need to find ways to feed ourselves I don't think that it makes sense for us to go after aquaculture or, or any sort of food production in a way that runs counter to the natural cycles of the planet. And I think a lot of aquaculture is doing that. We're, we're farming things in ways where it causes large booms of parasitic organisms because there's never times when the, when the fish are absent from certain areas. We have to feed them, and because we're, we've decided we want to feed specific fish and they happen to be carnivorous, we end up 
dumping far more protein into these pens than we actually get out for sale and for consumption. We end up very reliant on things like antibiotics because these farms are in places where the concentrations and the densities of the fish are so high that if they didn't have antibiotics, the disease outbreaks would be rampant. So we make a lot of choices to promote this idea that this is what we want to eat, this thing we already have, we just want more of it. We want it more frequently. Um, I think that's the false path when it comes to aquaculture. Right, right. right. Okay. All right. Well, that, that, that totally make, makes sense. And I think it comes across pretty well in that, in that lesson uh, from the salmon. Uh, let's move on to industrial fishing, where I think we're probably in agreement in, in that I, I really don't think you know, major large-scale industrial fishing can be sustainable really under any serious metric when you're putting, you know, massive, you know, miles of line or hundreds of thousands of hooks or bottom trawling. There's just simply too much destruction and bycatch to, to be sustainable. But let's, let's maybe take, go a little finer grain here. And, and, you know, you're a pioneer in sustainable seafood. We'll talk a little bit about your, your restaurants in a moment. Do you think the, the current sustainability ratings, you know, whether it's Monterey Aquarium Seafood Watch or Marine Stewardship Council or FishWise, do you think those are adequately capturing true sustainability principles? Uh, that's a good question. I think that these different rating systems are approaching it um, to, diff to, to different levels of, of efficacy um, and that they have slightly different goals. Overall, I'm, I'm not a scientist, and I, I don't feel that I'm qualified to get into the minutia of whether or not a specific science-based sustainability assessment is, is adequate. I, I just don't think I have the expertise or information. What I do believe is that there's, an, there's sort of a meta level here that I can comment on, which is that it means something. It means something to have the ongoing evolution of these labels and these approaches permeating our society to a greater degree. It means that more and more people are caring. And I think you could look at any one of these methodologies and you could say, is this really going to do anything? It's sort of like the straw ban, right? It's like, all right, people, people are going to ban straws in a certain city or certain state. We look at that as a percentage of the overall amount of plastic in the ocean. We're thinking, is this really going to do anything? And I think if you look at the simple mathematics, in some cases, sometimes it's discouraging. And you could apply that to some of the, to some of the um, sustainability labeling systems too. Not all of them. I think some of them are probably pretty strong and, and others are probably weaker if you look at just the straight mathematics. Um, but I like to not look at the straight mathematics, especially in the context of something like a children's book. I like to look at it in terms of the evolution of the concept and the approach as it permeates the zeitgeist. And I think just the simple fact that when you introduced the question, you were able to name three different um, organizations, three different systems, uh, just sort of right off the top of your head. I mean, I don't think that's something that a lot of people could do even five years ago. So just that there are more people active in this space and there are more organizations that are being taken seriously and making a difference. And there are more restaurants and institutions and governments in some cases that are adhering to these systems. I think that in itself is a symbol of a real sea change, uh, in the way that we think about this relationship and the way that we con our concept of, of the importance of sustainability. Um, so without being able to comment directly on the science, I'm encouraged simply by the fact that more and more of these exist and more and more of these are impacting people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's go a little more meta on that because I'm, I'm always a little conflicted by this because I think well, while clearly I agree with your points that these are kind of rising in people's consciousness, people are caring, and I, I think it's probably true in almost all circumstances that somebody who takes the time to find a, you know, a green listed species and eat that instead of just whatever they would have eaten on the menu, that, that that's an improvement, that's a step in the right direction. But I also at the same time feel conflicted because I feel like it's also making it 
it's kind of like it, it gives a pass to say, hey, as long as you do the green or the yellow, it's okay. Seafood's good. You know, we'll have it forever, which I do also think is kind of a false reality. And so I always, I always have mixed feelings about these things because, again, it, it seems like another kind of easy consumer fix, right? We'll just put a color-coded thing on there, and, and then you can keep doing business as usual. And I'm just I'm wondering if you have any of those conflicted thing, you know, feelings about this, or you feel it's pretty unambiguously, you know, just in, in the right direction. No, I'm, I'm conflicted about the similar issues too. Um, sometimes it's around seafood sustainability and sometimes it's around other issues that impact our oceans. But I, I think you put your finger on it when you said that it's about sort of a consumer quick fix. And I think that this, this is a problem because this is the other side of that same meta coin, which is, how much of a change can we make if we don't make a real change? And I mean, if we don't make a change to the way that we behave and the way that we think about our interactions with the world. And part of that is just the way that we conceptualize things like convenience, the way that we conceptualize how much we need to get done in one day, what's acceptable and what's not, how, uh, how much we need to achieve. These value systems the 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 externalities of these value systems are what have created in so many ways uh, our reliance on things like single-use plastic or the fact that we have meals so quickly that we need to go and get them at a place where we can't always defend what we're getting or i mean all of these choices spring from this idea that our priorities are complex and are based on so many things that are beyond just what's best for the world yeah. And really want to make a difference, that system needs to be challenged. And that's really hard to do. Most of what we're seeing, the innovations that we're seeing, are, as you said, things that could be described as quick fixes, which, from my perspective, what that would mean is it, things that substitutions that could be made that don't change that value system or don't challenge that priority, rather, that, that work because they match the current value system, right? It's like, all right, we don't want to use plastic bags anymore. And then the rejoinder would be, well, what else are we going to use that's super cheap and that if we forget our bags at home is going to be there and all these things, all the reasons we use plastic bags in the first place. And those are the values that birth plastic bags. And now we're asking those same values to birth something else that's better. I think that is the heart of the challenge is getting to a point where those actual values can be reassessed. And that's sort of, again, why I decided to go with a children's book, because I think that's a point in our lives when our values are more, we're more honest about them and they're less, they're less pragmatically assembled. They're more heart driven. And uh, if we can construct at that age, a value system that prioritizes environmental sanctity to a greater degree, I think it will be more difficult for that to be challenged later on down the road. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a solid bet. And uh, I, I, I agree with that. You know, when I, when I'm hanging out with my nephews and everything, obviously they're, they're not my children, so I'm not fully, you know, uh, indoctrinating them or anything, but I always try to throw in a few, a few lines here or there to get them thinking again, along the lines that you are about the, the core value systems. They're in New York City, which is, you know, obviously kind of the, the peak of consumerist culture in America right now. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's certainly challenging, but I think you're right. They're, the, at least at a young age, they're, they're certainly open to it and they don't have all these preconceived notions and they haven't been battered with whatever the 2 million commercials yet that are going to form their kind of their, their, their worldview. Um, let, let's, let's shift gears a little to, to your, to your restaurants. And, and I know that Shizen is your vegan sushi restaurant in San Francisco. If, if I'm not mistaken, is your most popular location, which is a, is a, a great, uh, you know, uh, motivator here to think about new, new value systems, because it's not, you know, when people think about sushi and they think about plant-based, oftentimes that's kind of a disconnect, but tell us a little bit about the success of that restaurant and whether you think this move to kind of plant-based, you know, reality for, for, for seafood and the like is feasible and, 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 and doable. Yeah, sure. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about Shizen. It's, it's been a, a whirlwind. Um, 
my partners and I, we opened our first restaurant in 2008 that was Tataki, and that was our experiment with seeing if we could run a sushi bar using only sustainable seafood. No one had really been trying anything like that um, from that perspective at the, at the time, so it was an adventure. Um, and seven years after that, we'd been sort of in that space for a while and, and had gotten a lot of great feedback and opened a couple more restaurants and, and seen a lot of other entrepreneurs enter the space. And it was very, it was very encouraging, but we wanted to go a little farther. And in 2015, we decided to do a place that was fully plant-based and that, that was uh, what became Shizen. And you're right. Shizen is by far our most popular restaurant historically and currently. And I find that extremely encouraging um, because it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, I believe that we as a global society would do the world and one another a favor largely if those of us that have had the choices use those choices to eat on a plant-based diet more frequently. Um, I, I absolutely believe that. I'm not going to go around and tell people that we all need to be vegans. I'm not going to go around and tell people that we shouldn't all be vegans. I, that's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me is that every meal is an opportunity to make choices. And I think if more of us made choices to eat plant-based foods more often, we would be able to create some major positive changes in terms of our relationship with the planet. I, uh, and not to mention our relationship with animals. I, um, I, I think this goes back to what we were talking about, though, about values, right? And Shizen was built on this same question of what are the real values that are driving the modern consumption chain? And how can we create a system that can deliver a better solution without forcing people to change those values? Because as, as I said earlier, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to challenge those values as an adult. And uh, so Shizen is built under this idea of how can we make plant-based food that appeals to omnivores, right? It's, it's great to feed vegan food to vegans. I mean, it feels great because these people that are, are making these hard choices and taking these steps to, to walk with a lighter footprint on the earth all too often in the sushi industry have nothing of interest to eat. Right. You can only have so many more, so many cucumber rolls before you're like, guys, let's go get something else. <laughs> um, so we really take a lot of pleasure in delivering uh, plant-based food to folks that have made this decision and are, are always so happy to, to have that um, opportunity to, to eat complex and interesting flavors um, at a sushi bar, even from a, uh, even though it's all plant-based, but to be honest, feeding vegan food to vegans isn't making change. It's feeding vegan food to omnivores that's making change. And we wanted to be able to do that. We wanted to be not just, hey, do we go to this vegan restaurant or that vegan restaurant? No, we wanted to be in the question, hey, do we go to Shizen or do we go get hamburgers? Because it's that question when then they, they say, hey, let's go to Shizen. That makes a difference in our minds. So we felt like, what could we do that will fall into that value system? How can we use plant-based uh, plant-based ingredients to create the kind of food that would leave that sort of satisfaction or enter that level of, of decision-making? Um, and so that, that was the basis of, of our concept behind the restaurant. And uh, we've done a lot of things wrong <laughs> in that process. We made a lot of mistakes, but... I'm pretty happy with where we are. Um, Shizen's had uh, quite a few awards now, and we've uh, we've opened a couple more restaurants based on the model. One in Honolulu, and and we're we're hoping to open one in Vegas relatively soon. So I'm I'm excited to see to see that growing, and and I hope that you know I mean it's exciting for me that you asked about it because it means that you see right away the, the link between Umiju and the restaurants. And uh, it's not something that I, I go front and center about certainly, but yeah, it, it's the same thing. You know, the, yeah. the two projects are, they're about the same thing. The restaurants, the book, it's all about the same thing. It's about 
how can we love our food in a way that also loves our planet? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to give a big shout out to Shizen and urge everyone who passes through San Francisco to go check it out. It is quite a, quite an experience and I've always enjoyed, enjoyed it immensely. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that you've been able to <clears throat> both expand that and, uh, and then bring those, that, that thinking into this book. So, so I think, you know, we got a couple, couple glass questions here that maybe will get a little deeper on, you know, maybe some of the, the, the depressing realities of kind of the, the state of play here in ocean conservation. But I think it's, you know, it'd be great to get your, your thoughts on this. And it's something I actually think about a lot as an educator, which is, you know, obviously we, we talking about you know, kind of in, in getting the next generation, especially the, you know, the younger, the better to have a different set of values and with the hopes that they'll be able to come in and maybe really change some of the structures. So it won't just be the things on the edges, but it'll really be the core structures that are really leading to the kind of environmental decline. But then I wonder, you know, I wonder if there's enough time, right? I think about the oceans in particular, where, you know, the, the things that I'm experiencing when I go snorkeling or swimming, the, the oceans are already so degraded, I'll never get to see what people 50, 75 years ago got to see in the oceans because the, the decline has been so rapid. And I wonder if, you know, if there really is enough time that it's really us adults who have to get things right now, or, you know, the, the five-year-olds, the seven-year-olds who are reading your book, there won't be that much for them to see, regardless of what their values are. And I'm, I'm wondering any, any thoughts on that? Certainly. Yeah. I, um, I know the feeling. And again, I didn't, I, I sort of mentioned this earlier. I wrote this book to live in that space of conversation. I wrote this book, not just to be for the children, but to be the fire that fuels the, the discussion between the parent and the child. I wrote this book because I want these parents to see the issues in the book reflected back at them in the eyes of their kids. I want them to bond over this. I want the, the folks to see this is an issue that is important to my children as, a, as a, a mirror, as a way to feel these things the way that the kids can still feel them. Um, you're right, you know? We need people to take action now. We can't just wait for the kids to grow up. But I don't think kids' books are about kids. I think kids' books are about connections and values. And I mean, I think about the kids' books that had an impression on me when I was little. I guarantee you they also had an impression on my mother reading them to me, you know? My mother probably knows more of the words of the giving tree than I do. She's the one that had to read it to me all those times. And I think that, that those experiences, they don't just change the kid. They don't just affect the kid. They, they change the relationship. It becomes something that we connect with our family over, that we share, that strengthens us, something that we can do together. I, um, I really hope that, that Umiju helps mothers and daughters and fathers and sons in any permutation bond over their care about the ocean and bond over their desire to make a change. I, uh, I would love to see the change happening in teams and groups and families. I think that's the way where it will work, right? Because that way it's powered by this love and kinship that already exists. This idea that We've shared this book together. Don't we want to share a healthy future together as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really good that you pointed out this this feedback mechanism, right? These aren't unidirectional things, right? Like like you said, the the parent is impacted both because they're reading the book, but also because of their children's reactions to the book. And it is a, a conversation and a dynamic. And I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of pretty strong psychological literature out there that, you know, kids taking a strong stance on something has a pretty big impact on their, their parents much more than, you know, than, than advertisements or political ads or whatever. But if their kid takes a, you know, a strong, deep, emotional, heartfelt stance on something that really has a pretty big impact 
on the adults in their in their lives. So I think that's that's really important to point that out that this is a so it's a more complex uh, interaction there. Um, let's let's move on to you know the, the the end of the book here where you have the the kind of the you know what can you do kind of thing you know I have it on the last page and I I don't mean to get too nitpicky on this I just find myself in this circumstance a lot where I give a lot of talks and and unfortunately a lot of the, the statistics and the the reality of of the trajectories here are pretty poor and so a lot of people yeah what can I do you know and and I, I I've been thinking about this quite deeply you're you're on the last page of the back you know basically before the back cover there you have your kind of list of reduce, you know, animal consumption, choose sustainable seafood, you know, reduce single-use plastics, that kind of stuff. And, and what I did notice was absent, and again, I, I don't think it, the, the back of a, a children's book is necessarily the place for it, but was this more collective action, was more the, the politics. And, and the reason I say this is because, you know, these days in the United States, when we have, you know, a political party that is really a scorched earth politics of just destruction on, on every dimension, there's only so much recycling, only so much choosing a plant-based meal. I actually told people just the other week, I said, the most important thing you can do for ocean conservation is politics, is voting and getting people to vote. And, and that, that's the collective action is the most important, not the, the individual action. And, and again, probably not the place in a children's book for that, but I'm just thinking more broadly, what's your, what's your thought on that? You know, how much do you think politics and activism and how much do you way politics is really the key variable here that we should be focusing on well i i think i think you're right i think it's not the place for it in terms of the back of a children's book um and there's a couple reasons for that one because it becomes too indirect you know most of the children that read this they can't vote and so it becomes this leverage point where it would it would have to have their parents voting on their behalf um and i wanted to create things that the kids could do directly or that they could do together. Um, so that would be the first point. And the second point is that politics are divisive by their very nature. They're divisive. And I wanted to offer things that were unifiers, things that we bring us together. Now, I, I it, this is not to say that I disagree with you. Um, obviously we're in a political situation now where due to the nature of, of our system, and the choices that have been made by some key figures in, in these parties, um, we are lashed to a system that, that will never fully and appropriately represent the needs of the planet or our relationship with the planet, right? Because it's, it just doesn't reward um, the politicians the way that, that acknowledging other issues might reward them. So I think it's difficult. I think it's really challenging right now to be an environmentalist and involved in politics has been frustrating forever and continues to be frustrating. Um, but I think there's a, there's a darkness. There's a, a cynicism, a, a jadedness that pervades the concepts and questions and issues around American politics. Um, and that's not what this book is about, especially not the last page. Mm -hmm. The last page needs to be about the opposite of that. It needs to be about finding areas of hope and sparking activity and making people excited to do something. I think all too often, politics makes people shut down, mm -hmm. makes people feel helpless and hopeless. And that's the polar opposite of what I'm trying to do in the book. And I'm not saying that, that politics aren't important. I'm just saying that the values that I'm trying to ignite, the emotions that I'm trying to ignite, it's a different pathway. So one, one question I have, you made, it made me think, cause I, I totally get that. And again, I don't, I don't want to, um, get across that I think you should have put anything, you know, overtly political like that in there. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, you said hopeful, optimistic. What about something, you know, for, for part two where, it, you know, on that is, you know, you know, think about a career in political leadership or in leadership so that you can, you know, make, make, you know, environmental conservation, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, 
priority for, for our society. Something, something, you know, I, I could see that, you know, something hopeful, something out in, er, yeah. encouraging, encouraging young people to think about a, a future in, in leadership. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that there could be something in there like that of, you know, taking, considering, considering uh, entering that space or bringing your values into that space. I, I think that there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, I probably didn't put anything in there because I just didn't think of it. You know, the things that I was thinking about, um, I was really focused on, hey, what can we do today? What can I do when I put this book down? What right. can I do, you know, um, what are things, so much of the message of the book is about being mindful. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to to give give the reader something that they can carry with them that can help them make those sort of daily decisions um, in a light that doesn't cause the same impacts. I mean, that's so much about what the three uh, animals are, are talking about in the book, right? This just, hey, you know, so much of this is just about thinking and not acting on autopilot when it comes to our little decisions about what we eat and what we buy and how we do it. So I, I wanted to give some, some little pushes and opportunities there that would live in that space. Yeah, and that makes uh, complete sense. Again, I, I think that, that that's totally valid and, and understandable. I, I think, you know, coming back to your your notion that cynicism pervades kind of the American political discourse, I think is obviously true. One, I think, maybe little shimmer of light on that is that in these dark times, we are seeing a lot of people who probably wouldn't have thought of entering politics, enter politics. And then, you know, in 2018, we had that huge wave of women and Native American women and Muslim women. And that's, that is really encouraging to see that a much broader spectrum of people saying, hey, you know, I can do this too and I, can, I should be represented. And so that's maybe one, one little shimmer again, little, little, I don't, silver lining would be going too far, but at least it's, it's a positive reaction to the darkness that, that we're seeing. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I, I was, I did take a lot of hope from that myself um, and continue to. And I think there's there's something to be said for the the idea that crisis is the the best engineer of human development. Right, this idea that it it will take these crushing catastrophes for us to become the best version of ourselves, both as individuals and as a society. And um, maybe those maybe that's a an early an early result is we're starting to see the kinds of people that we really need as leaders, finally having the opportunity and the positions to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and your, your, that notion that you just said about, uh, we need crushing catastrophe, I think were your words to, to, to evolve essentially. I always come back to and I go, wow, it wouldn't it be so much nicer if we didn't need to do everything uh -huh. horrible to get some lessons out of it, right? If we could, <laughs> we could avoid some of the crushing catastrophe, that would be a, a much smoother pathway. But alas, maybe, maybe that's just have. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. maybe we have. Maybe things could have been a lot worse at times and we were able to get around it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's true. We don't have the counterfactuals. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, just to end on, on uh, uh, a note back to, to your work, can you have any new projects on the horizon that you'd like to share with us? Kind of what, what is Cass and Trenner up to these days to, to you know, on, on thinking on the horizon? Well, um, I'm about to start uh, a little promotional tour for Umiju, which is exciting. I'm actually leaving on that today. Um, and that'll be, that'll be nice. We're doing a lot of different kinds of events, everything from reading for, for children at libraries to, um, large scale signings at, at municipal institutions like aquariums to um, dinners where we wrap in an umiju reading with a multi-course uh, sustainable sushi or vegan dinner. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I get to connect with a lot of people over the story and, and share those moments together. Um, and then, yeah, there's always more restaurant stuff in the work. Like I said, uh, hopefully I'll have a, a place to share with you all that uh, we're kind of putting in Vegas by, I don't know, maybe early next year. Restaurants always take a million times longer than they should. But uh, yeah, be, I'm, I'm really hopeful. We're, we're looking to put in another plant-based uh, Japanese place in, in Vegas that I think it's the kind of community that could really use an injection of that kind of, uh, that kind of 
opportunity in terms of how to relate to food and where we can get some good light footprint stuff um, in the middle of the desert. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So where, if people want to find out about these events or to purchase the book, what, uh, what website or contact uh, should they, should they uh, seek? The best place is umiju.com. It's just U-M-I-J-O-O.com. That's a good, uh, that's a good rundown of, of everything we're working on. Um, it's got the tour schedule. You can buy the book through the portal there on that website. Um, there's another website. It's not, I don't know when this is going to be, um, released this, this, uh, podcast, but in the, in the coming few weeks, we're going to have another website called code blue ocean. That's going to live over at Maven. Um, and that's just, uh, code blue ocean slash earth And that's going to be more of a home for not just Umiju stuff, but a lot of the more, um, kind of more uh, higher level discussions on the kinds of things that are facing our ocean right now, some of the problems and more importantly, a lot of the potential solutions. Uh, so please come, come over to code blue ocean and, and check that out. That's going to be a really interesting place to have these discussions. Well, and I'm hoping, yeah, I'm hoping that will be live by, uh, by July. By July. Okay, great. And you know, I'm sure that, uh, given that your, your footprint will be in it, it will have some, some deep thinking and certainly make us question some of our core assumptions and values, which is the key here to, to the, the, the evolutionary project that we're on here to, to get things in balance, coming back to where you, where you started the conversation. So Cassin, look, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I, I wish you the best of luck on this tour, and I will definitely continue to promote the book. I think it's an, you know, an awesome addition to the children's canon. And again, I look forward to, to sharing it with my nephews coming up. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. My pleasure. Okay, well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Cassin. One thing I realized that we didn't touch on in the interview that I just want to comment on briefly is the illustrations in the book. They are really outstanding. They kind of have a little hint of anime, but just deeper than that. The, the colors, the kind of the details in the, the underwater world, and the expressions in the people's faces. It's, it's just some really outstanding artwork. So the book is both a great message and a great story and coupled with some great artwork. So my antidote here today is simple, which is if you have any children in your life, and chances are you do, whether they're your own or your grandchildren or your nieces or nephews or family, friends, kids, I'd say go buy this book for them. I think you will feel really good about it and it will it'll be a great addition to their, their reading list. And, you know, of course, the, the other thing just to mention is, is food matters, right? As Cassin pointed out, food is the one thing we have, that choice that we have multiple times a day to really have an impact, to express our values, and to impact sustainability. Unlike buying a house or buying a car or even buying clothes that are much more infrequent purchases, food is, is that continual daily choice that we have about the type of impact that we wanna have and the type of values we wanna express. And I really think moving in the direction of the plant-based world is the way to go. And if you're in the Bay Area, a great way to do that would be to check Shizen restaurant in the San Francisco area. And uh, if you're in New York area, again, Beyond Sushi is a great one, but there's a amazing restaurants and products all out, all over the country and the world. A great resource is Happy Cow. Uh, they have lists of the best plant-based restaurants in whatever location you're at, so check them out. And with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please uh, subscribe on Apple, iTunes, and Stitcher, and rate it, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, have a great rest of the week, and take care.